Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Lucia Caballero. I am the Government Relations Assistant at the Boston Bar Association, and I have the pleasure of working with the Ethics Committee um, over the past year. So I'm just going to give a brief introduction of our panelists before we get started. So as we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic has raised a unique set of challenges for attorneys and the legal profession as a whole. So we thought now would be a great time to address some of those challenges with the co-chairs of our um, ethics committee, Paul Tremblay and Elizabeth Holding. Paul is a clinical professor of law at Boston College Law School, and he has been a member of the faculty there since 1982. Elizabeth is a partner at Peabody and Arnold and has focused on civil litigation there since law school. As I mentioned before, they are the co-chairs of the Ethics Committee, which issued an advisory for Massachusetts attorneys on ethical challenges during the pandemic in April. So they will discuss the content of that advisory and take your questions at the end. Uh, please use the Q&A function um, to submit your questions and uh, we will address those uh, after the presentation is done. Thank you. So we're ready to start. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, um, thank you, Lucia, for the introduction. Um, so as Lucia said, we are um, Elizabeth uh, Holding and I are going to be uh, reviewing the, um, the, the ideas that we had, that the committee as a whole had developed and put together in this advisory. Uh, here's the link to it. Um, you, it's not going to be on the screen long enough for you to be able to write it down. But as you heard, the, the PowerPoint and the presentation will be recorded, so you'll have a chance to to see this, but you can find this on the BBA um, website. So um, we're going to go through, there are eight different issues that we identified in our, in our advisory. And we also referred to an advisory from the Office of Bar Council on, that covers some of the same issues, not all of the ones that we, that we covered. So we encourage you to look there as well. Um, but um, I'm going to talk about some, Elizabeth's going to talk about some others. So here's the first one that we talk about. So the question is what, what are the special ethics issues that have that are arising as we all deal with the fact that the world is shut down and we're working remotely? Um, and the issues that we're going to be covering um, for the next uh, for the next several minutes are issues that were important before the pandemic, but they're obviously much more important now given the way that we're all operating. Um, so um, the the first message, this first one, is probably the most obvious one, um, but really helpful to remind you. Um, so in Massachusetts, um, it is um, the, the rule of competence, rule 1.1, um, refers to a lawyer's um, understanding the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology as an element of your ability to practice competently. The reference to the technology comes in a comment, not in the rule itself. Rule 1.1 says that you need to practice competently. Um, but the fact that it's in a, that it's in a comment um, doesn't mean that it's not um, a duty that you have. Um, and I've actually seen in, in, in a few contexts, and you may have as well, that lawyers who have not kept abreast of technology have found themselves in, in trouble. So you need to understand the benefits and risks of working with technology. Um, the benefits, well, the benefits are pretty, uh, pretty obvious, right? The fact that you are here 
shows that you understand the importance of being able to communicate with your clients and others through some kind of remote device like Zoom that we're on now or Google Meet or WebEx or whichever device or, or avenue that you're using. Um, in the past, you would meet with your clients most likely in, in the office and it would be safe, but um, you can't do that now. So if you're gonna continue to practice competently, you need to be able to um, connect um, to clients using some, some um, um, vehicle, um, some platform, so that you can continue to do the good work that you're gonna be doing for your clients. Are there risks in that? Of course there are risks. Um, the first one, the most obvious one, um, you all know about, uh, it's not gonna happen here, I trust. Um, but you've all heard stories of the Zoom bombing where people show up. Like if you're having a meeting with a client and if you don't arrange for it to be secure enough, someone else could visit your client meeting. Uh, much harder to do that if you're meeting with your client in your office. If you're meeting with somebody um, um, electronically, um, rem remotely, then you need to make sure that you have some way of ensuring that it is as secure as it possibly can be. Um, there are other risks as well. Um, I'm, I'm talking to you right now from the study in my house. Um, if, if you're talking to a client from a place that's not your office, you have to be quite clear that no one else in your in your space can overhear your conversation. Um, and equally important, you need to make sure that people in, uh, that your clients are in a space where um, other people aren't hearing it. Um, in terms of your own duties of confidentiality and some worries about the, 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 the loss of the attorney-client privilege if it turns out that other people are overhearing your conversation. Um, you have all seen the various phishing and spoofing schemes where criminals or savvy people who are trying to hijack your, your, your information will send you emails or otherwise get in touch with you in ways that make you think that they're someone else. And we've seen some law firms that have gotten in pretty big trouble for not recognizing phishing or spoofing schemes. And then obviously if other people in your, in, where you're working, if you're now working from home, um, are sharing your computer, that's, it's really important that you make sure that, that you understand how to secure your communications with your clients from people who don't have access to them. So here's one other screen. You're not gonna have time to look at it all, but it's going to be on the, um, on the PowerPoint if you look at it later. So the, the SJC has a standing committee on lawyer well-being and Elizabeth kindly put this together from, from information from that standing committee about ways that you, or items that you need to attend to when you are working remotely. So it's a really uh, comprehensive and, and important list here, uh, which you can look at later. Okay, on to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you're muted. I'm unmuted now, sorry about that. Thanks uh, for joining us. Thank you for spending your lunchtime with us um, when I know everyone is juggling a lot. So the, uh, the topics that Paul was touching on have to do with the, the tension really between the duty of competent representation under Rule 1.4 in the Massachusetts Rules of Professional Conduct 
and Rule 1.6, which is the obligation to protect client confidentiality and the communications that you're having with your client. We know that um, there have been news articles and discussions within the various bar associations and advocacy groups as well related to uh, attorneys having difficulty uh, gaining access to their clients. That was certainly true at the beginning of the outbreak of the um, you know, prior to COVID-19 being declared a pandemic uh, with uh, lawyers in uh, criminal law practices, in immigration law practices, and also lawyers who were um, involved in commitment proceedings as well, having difficulty accessing their clients, and also um, having concerns about the uh, lack of privacy in, the, uh, in those meetings, whether the most of those meetings, of course, eventually had to switch over to become uh, phonic or perhaps uh, video conference if that's possible uh, through whatever location the client is in. We just wanted to raise for you that um, Rule 1.6 does require the lawyer to make reasonable efforts to prevent the inadvertent disclosure or unauthorized disclosure of confidential information relating to the client and the representation of the client. Um, and this tension is ongoing, we know, between the uh, desire to represent clients well and competently and the desire to have um, the ability to communicate with the clients in a private setting. As far as we understand it, lawyers are doing the best they can with this and are certainly bringing these issues to the attention of the courts themselves, the regional administrative judges and the leadership of the courts as well. I would just also say that you know all of us uh, on the lawyer side as well are working, uh, not all of us, I think some people are actually accessing their offices when their offices are um, in a more uh, contained setting, but most of us are working remotely and we need to be aware of protecting the privacy of our own communications, whether that means that you have to turn off Alexa, you have to turn off Siri and disable them so that they're not picking up um, any of the conversations that you're having. Uh, there may be questions on this at the end. That was a sort of general reference to the tension uh, between those two rules. We understand that lawyers are using their best judgment and their independent professional judgment to uh, avoid being overheard and um, just to try to have an understanding of where the client is, ask where the client is, ask if the client can be overheard, ask if there is a way to arrange for the communication to be more private than, um, uh, than it otherwise would be. Paul, you want to move forward to the next one there? Certainly. Thanks, Elizabeth. So, so um, I'm going to spend just a minute talking about uh, a subset of the issues that Elizabeth just talked about. Um, that, and this is one of the issues in our 
in our presentation that is much more relevant given the pandemic than the others are. I mean, as I said before, most of these others are important things to pay attention to generally, but this is one that has special relevance to the fact that, um, that the world is a pretty scary place. So obviously if your client has access to a tablet, a smartphone, a laptop or a computer, then you can find ways to, and has internet access, then you can find ways to communicate with the client and do your, and do your work um, as well as you would have done otherwise, we hope. Um, but what if your client doesn't have access to a smartphone or a laptop? Um, the, the, there's a question of whether that means, like if the only way you can really talk to the client is in person, um, does, that work, does, does your ethical duty of competence, is your ethical duty to be a, a good and faithful advocate for your client mean that you need to meet with your client in person at some risk? And we saw this advisory that was part of a really useful um, um, presentation by the American Immigration Lawyers Association um, about being concerned about having uh, contact with, with, with their clients who are in lockup um, and who, um, who whether you might not safely be able to meet them. Um, and the question was whether lawyers have to necessarily take the risk and meet with the clients anyways. And let me highlight some uh, provisions. I'm really glad that the American Immigration Lawyers Association said this because they, 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 they really kind of up the ante here, um, noting that the clients who are in detention, it could be for them a matter of life or death for their clients. So the implication might be read here, or you, one might read into this an implication that as a lawyer, if you can't talk to your client through some, through some um, smartphone or remotely that you need to take some chances and go meet with the client. Uh, we wanted to tell you as the ethics committee that we don't think, I mean, obviously you need to do everything you can to find ways to communicate with your client safely. Uh, and there may be ways that you can meet with your client where with masks and distance that it's all going to work. But if the concern is, if the question is whether you need to put yourself at risk and by doing so, you're risking your family, your neighbors, um, our, our senses, and this shouldn't surprise you, but we wanted to be clear about this, that you don't need to put yourself, you need to find some way to do this, but you not at some risk to yourself. And it's a really interesting and really terrible dilemma that lawyers can find themselves in, but we wanted to make this clear. Okay, Elizabeth, back to you. So I just, um, I'll, uh, the next topic that we had touched on in the advisory has to do with succession planning and concerns uh, that lawyers may themselves become ill. I do want to note that um, I did see a question that had come in on the Q&A, thank you. And the question had to do with um, the courtroom setting because there are, um, sessions that are hearings that are being held on urgent and emergency matters and the concern that uh, whether it's a video conference or a teleconference or an in-person hearing uh, inside a courtroom that the uh, microphone whether it's zoom or telephone or otherwise may be picking up uh, what the client believes is a private conversation between the client and the attorney 
Um, our advice on that would be to just make, to do your best to make sure that the um, client is aware of who else is involved in this setting and who else may be able to overhear so that you can try as best you can to protect what, um, what the client is trying to communicate to you in a hearing setting. We know that that's challenging. Uh, it's challenging for everyone who's on the line, certainly uh, whether uh, in these hearings, but I do think that you can um, make sure that the client understands that people may be able to overhear and that you need to be communicating whether it's you do, whether you step away from the recording device to confer or make other arrangements in that sense. Um, with regard to um, succession planning, we had noted in, um, in the advisory that um, there is no requirement in Massachusetts that lawyers have a uh, succession plan for their practice. If they were to become ill or incapacitated or to be stepping away from the practice of law. But during the pandemic, there is of course a heightened concern that lawyers uh, may become ill for some period of time and not be able to be in contact with their clients and with opposing counsel and others on their cases as regularly as they would otherwise be. In Maine, um, we had noted in the advisory that to renew your license annually in Maine, to practice that you do have to identify a proxy attorney who understands that that proxy attorney uh, is available to step in if you um, are become unavailable, whether it's uh, through illness or disability or uh, an attorney who passes away. Here in Massachusetts, we don't have that requirement, but we do um, have uh, at least the suggestion that it is a good and smart practice to engage in. Um, those of us who are in law firms, this may um, be easily accomplished with our partners. Those of us who are in smaller practices uh, will require some conversations with friends and colleagues in the bar to see uh, who is willing to do this. Uh, it doesn't mean that that person's going to take over your practice forever. It doesn't mean that they have to um, uh, do anything immediately, but just so that there is someone essentially who understands that this may, could become their obligation for some period of time. There has to be also an awareness that there are records, uh, files and client trust accounts that need to be protected. And perhaps a lawyer who could step in as substitute counsel if there are events that are happening in the short term that would need to be handled. Um, I should point you, uh, there's a reference here on the uh, slide to an ABA formal opinion on ethical, which is formal opinion 482 on ethical obligations related to disasters from 2018. Um, it is very interesting to take a look at. Um, and also there is very good guidance on the Board of Bar Overseers website on uh, succession planning. 
as well. So that is a very helpful resource um, to be referring to. And um, the ABA also has, uh, together with that formal opinion, they have other resources as well, including um, a very detailed guide to um, developing a business continuity plan. It's too detailed for us to get into here, but obviously there are um, uh, many steps that need to be taken to develop a business continuity plan so that uh, your practice can remain uh, intact and running as well as possible if, they're, if we're in situations such as we're in right now or if a lawyer were to become unwell for some period of time. Paul, I think, uh, I think I'm ready for you to take on the next one. Okay, thanks. And before I go to my next screen, um, I, I wanted to do two things um, related to what Elizabeth has just been talking about. Um, one is, and this, this, is, this is a question of how savvy I am about technology. So uh, if I, I'm reading a Q&A, a comment from Mark Larson, who is a member, who has uh, worked for CPCS and is a member of the Ethics Committee. If I, if I show this on my own screen here in my house, uh, Lucia, does the rest of the world see it? Um, we can just put it in the chat if you would like the whole group to see it. No, no, I just want to make sure that I'm not interrupting things if I read things while this is going on. Oh, no. Okay, You're perfect. So let me read what Mark said um, about the um, about the confidentiality. This, again, Mark is from Committee for Public Counsel Services. He's a member of the of the BBA Ethics Committee. I'll just read this for whatever, for, to, so you can all hear his wisdom. Zoom proceedings should all use the option of a separate quote room close quote for confidential for a confidential communication. If the proceeding is going forward by phone or video that does not allow for a room or a breakout session. Council should make arrangements to communicate with their client by text or email. If that is not possible, then council should alert the court that there may be a need for a there may be need to be a, there may need to be a recess to speak with your client during the proceeding. So thanks, Mark, for for that. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to mention to follow up on Elizabeth's helpful discussion is um, and our printed advisory uh, drops a footnote on this. Um, if it turns out that you're needing to talk to your client in a setting where you just, it's impossible to have the privacy that you need, there, are, there is authority um, in Massachusetts and elsewhere that the privilege should not be lost. Obviously, the confidentiality is lost if someone's hearing it. Nothing you can do about that. But if someone wanted to claim that that, that conversation is no longer privileged because, some, because it's overheard, and ordinarily, if a communication is not confidential, then the privilege is lost. Um, if it's impossible, the odds, our sense is that you should still have a very strong case that the privilege remains. Okay, here's the next topic that I wanted to talk about. We talked about what happens, how you need to prepare for the lawyer's health. Um, what about if your client gets sick? And lots of people are getting sick. And um, the world is, is uh, much more fragile than it was two or three months ago. Um, so, so what should you do if your client gets sick? Um, first, no surprise to you at all that um, 
let's, let's imagine, and, and I guess for our purposes, let's assume your client has contracts um, the coronavirus um, and is, is tested positive and is, and is, and is quite sick. Um, if the client's ability to make reasoned decisions, if you can still communicate with the client, then obviously you can, you'll continue to, to proceed in the same way. If your client, despite the sickness, is, a, is able to work with you, then you, you'll do your best and you'll continue the way you otherwise would have. Um, but if your client's ability because of the illness is the ability to make reasoned decisions is impaired, then rule 1.14 of the Massachusetts Rules of Professional Conduct, mimicking but actually improving on the model rule, um, it first requires that you do your best to maintain a normal attorney-client relationship. That's nice to see, but that doesn't help us, does it? Um, and if that's not possible, to the extent that it's not possible, it gives you permission to act in ways in a protective way, kind of in a paternalistic way that you wouldn't or ordinarily do. You wouldn't ordinarily make decisions for your client. You would, uh, you would rely on your client's um, instructions to you about what you do. But if your client is impaired, rule 1.14 gives you pretty explicit permission to make decisions on your own. Um, and then the question is like, how do you know, how do you make those decisions? Um, so uh, it would be the, the message that the ethics committee has for us all is that it would be prudent. And we now have a really good excuse, don't we? Um, to plan ahead and to have conversations with our client. We add a couple things. Um, talking to your client. And again, you, you, um, you have a, a good reason to want to talk to your client about what happens if things go wrong. Who, who would be available for you to talk with? Who, who, on whose um, judgment would you rely if you can't rely on the client? Um, the best arrangement is if your client has a durable power of attorney, which, identify, which would identify a person who would serve as the, as the proxy, as the surrogate, and you could treat that person then as your client. Um, and so making sure your client has an advanced directive is really useful. But even in the absence of an advanced directive, knowing um, whom you should rely on and whom you can talk to, and there's an exception under Rule 1.6 that permits you to talk to people if Rule 1.14 kicks in, you can talk to people about your client's matters in ways that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. Um, but clients make it sick. So the, the message from the Ethics Committee is that um, talk to your clients about this, think about it, and make a plan so that you're not left stranded if your client does get sick. Okay. Back to you, Elizabeth. Okay, the next, uh, the next point is quite um, straightforward, really. It had to do with questions that were coming up uh, early on during this um, sort of developing uh, viral infection with respect to all of the changes that were happening in the law and lawyers who were concerned that um, that they may be obliged to be updating clients every day on the various relief packages, what the deadlines are, who, who is um, qualified, who isn't qualified, and how they could stay on top of that kind of um, changing scenario in which there are, um, there's new information and uh, something to stay on top of every day. 
So really what this comes down to um, at the most basic level is that it is an opportunity to review the engagement letters. Um, if you provide advice to a client on an ongoing general basis, take a look at the engagement letter with that client to see whether, um, whether there is an expectation or an obligation within that engagement for you to be uh, reaching out affirmatively to the client to say, uh, I know I've been providing advice to you on this topic. I want you to know that this uh, loan package now exists, et cetera. I know we're past some of that, um, some of those developments uh, at this point, but uh, with the initial relief packages that were rolled out, but at the same time, um, it's the, um, the crisis is ongoing. Everything changes um, routinely. And the scope of representation in Massachusetts under one, Rule 1.5b 1 uh, is to be communicated to client in writing. So this is really just um, a reminder that if you have clients that um, are asking you for this advice, then uh, obviously you uh, can be providing it pursuant to whatever agreement you have with that client, providing that you are competent to do so. And if you have a more general understanding with the client and you're not sure what the expectations are in the current crisis, then certainly uh, it's an opportunity to be in touch with the client and understand what kind of help the client may need for you from you um, at this time. Also, uh, in the current um, climate, uh, lawyers may be asked to provide advice in areas of the law in which they don't typically practice. That is a very um, dicey area to tread into, and um, we would just remind everyone that if the circumstances are very urgent, if a will is required urgently, to inform yourself as best you can to make sure that the circumstances are urgent. If you're not someone who's drafted a will in your practice, to make sure that everyone understands that it is not your typical area of practice and to make sure that you're not charging an excessive fee if you have um, uh, become enmeshed in uh, providing advice in an area which is not your usual area of practice. So just be very cautious with that kind of request and um, read the rules about what you are and are not allowed to do in uh, emergent circumstances. The next topic really um, has to do with uh, something that we've all been doing, I think, um, since this, uh, since for the past few months at least, is really just to be uh, diligent about the status of your cases and the uh, courts and the agencies and the um, locations in which you are practicing. The courts and agencies have done a good job. Uh, in Massachusetts of keeping their website dated and uh, of advising people of changes in the state court and the federal courts in Massachusetts. 
we know that these things change every day. We know that there was toll of certain deadlines at the beginning, but there is now um, some, there are now some recent communications that say that filing deadlines might not uh, remain told. Uh, so it's very important to be looking at the websites for the courts in which you are working, making sure that you're communicating with, um, with either the courts, if need be, the agencies, your clients, your opposing counsel, and your colleagues out um, any uh, changes that may affect the status of the case and how to be handling um, how to be handling the work that needs to be done. There was a letter that um, most of you probably already seen from last week that uh, was issued by the um, judicial leaders in Massachusetts on the path forward during the pandemic that's referenced there from May 14th. It really is just um, a general letter saying that uh, on a typical day before this pandemic, people went into the courthouses in Massachusetts every day, that they have um, done a, as much as they can to hear the matter are urgent, and that they have also uh, started hearing matters telephonically and through video conference means as well, and that that is starting to increase, uh, and that they are working hard to figure out uh, what the summer will and what the fall will look like uh, and whether and when um, some uh, some jury trials will be able to uh, commence in the fall if uh, if children are able to return to school that was one of the considerations mentioned there so just a reminder to be looking at these um, websites and to be keeping people uh, informed within your cases the final point there is um, just a uh, reminder that the MCLE does a program uh, fairly regularly called How to Make Money Out of Trouble. It's an excellent program. It takes uh, the bulk of a day, but will also be available June 12th is the next day on which it will be given, but it will also be available thereafter. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, it's uh, a very well thought out um, presentation with uh, panelists who are very informed and we just wanted to make sure that people understood that that program is there and um, and is also a good forum in which to uh, attend and raise questions about them. I think that's it Paul on that slide. Good. So before I go to the next topic, then let me read. We got a wonderful comment from Pam Harbison, who is an assistant bar counsel, and I think she may be our former student. And if so, she was a great softball player. Uh, and here's what here's what Pam's um, um, sharing with the group. Um, she wanted to point out it was a great reminder that Rule 1.16, which is the withdrawal rule, it requires a lawyer to withdraw from representation if the lawyer's physical or mental condition materially impairs the lawyer's ability to represent the client. So if the lawyer gets ill, there's a duty to advise the kind and may require that you withdraw. So that's a really helpful reminder. So thank you for that, Pam. Okay, so here's the next topic. So 
Um, and this is one that, that, that had, had relevance before the pandemic, but has a special relevance now. Um, so this is, and it, it's pretty easy to imagine this scenario. Um, imagine your client is unemployed um, and is really, it just run, has run out, of, run out of money. Perhaps in the future we'll be able to have money, but for now, um, not, not much money, really needs help meeting monthly expenses, paying his rent, buying groceries for his family, paying for his utilities. And you, you're, you're, this, your client has lost his job. Um, and we could even imagine that it's a contingent fee arrangement so that you don't have to worry about you're getting paid. Um, and you can afford, your business is still proceeding, so you could afford to help him out. And you'd really like to do that because you are generous and you are compassionate and you really like to be able to give him some money or loan him some money to tide him over to pay his living expenses. So the question is, can you do that? And the answer is you can't. And it's really helpful to be reminded of that um, if you represent the client on a litigation matter. Those of us who do transactional work, we can loan money or give money to our clients if we want, but not you litigators. Um, and it comes from Rule 1.8e, which Massachusetts has as well as, as uh, the, every other jurisdiction in the country except for one. Um, and it prohibits any payments except for the cost of expenses of litigation. So of course you can pay for the deposition, you can pay for the expert witness, perhaps get, get repaid when the client, if the client wins. Um, um, and even if you're not charging the client anything for your fees, you still can't give the client a thousand bucks to pay rent or to take care of a car payment to avoid a car from getting re repossessed or the like. Um, so important to know that um, it's helpful, but not helpful enough to know that the ABA is in the process right now of, of adding, of changing rule 1.8E to permit money, um, to, pit, to permit um, loans or gifts to clients to cover living expenses if you're not charging the client a fee for the representation. I don't think that's passed, no, I'm quite sure it hasn't passed the ABA through the House of Delegates yet. But even if it had, it doesn't change, it doesn't apply to Massachusetts until the SJC makes its own change. Um, and let me add one other quick thing about this. Um, um, the comment rule 1.8E says you can't give clients money or loan clients money for living expenses. Um, 1.8a says that you can have a business transaction with a client if you comply with a lot of, 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 of conditions, including the client having a right to get access to an independent counsel, everything has to be in writing, everything has to be fair. Um, and so ordinarily, a loan between a lawyer and a client would be fine under 1.8a. But 1.8e says you can't loan money to your clients for living expenses. So not exactly sure how those, those those get harmonized, but you should know that know that and keep that in mind. Okay, back to Elizabeth. So um, this is just so everyone knows that we are reaching the end here. This is the last slide, and it is um, just a reminder for everyone that the Office of Bar Council is uh, still running the line for ethics questions Monday, Wednesday, Friday afternoons from 2 to 4 p.m. 
Uh, it's a very helpful resource if you have ethics questions that are arising for you. Uh, and uh, you will find someone there who will assist in answering your question. Paul had mentioned at the beginning of today's presentation that the Bar Council also issued a, um, a document referred to as on the pandemic, which is on the uh, Board of Bar Overseers website. Uh, and it covers some of the topics here, some frequently asked questions, um, very helpful resource as well. With respect to the Board of Bar Overseers plenary matters, filing deadlines uh, remain in place and uh, for people who are involved in any disciplinary matters there, you please be checked on uh, any deadlines that are coming so that can be on top of anything that needs to be done with that. Those, um, those are the uh, topics that we wanted to touch on, just a basic overview of the advisory that we had, that the Ethics Committee had issued in April. We appreciate everyone's comments today and um, everyone taking the time to in and send us um, helpful questions and helpful commentary. There, we have time for other questions now, if you have any. Um, and it's uh, a frustrating because we'd like to all of verbally, we believe that there are um, dozens of tuned in today. And if you have any additional questions, we're happy to hear them. If you have questions that you would like to send to me or Paul on behalf um, of the Ethics Committee. Afterwards, we're happy to receive those as well if there's anything we do um, to, get those, uh, to get those questions answered for you. So it looks, no it looks like no questions other than the comments and questions that came in. Uh, I see one now um, that uh, is asking about a certificate of attendance for today's presentation and how that should be obtained. I will let Lucia um, respond to that. Uh, I'll have to check in with our professional development team about that, but if this anonymous person would like to uh, email me, um, we can get that answered. I see, um, I see a new question coming in as well relating to uh, session planning and whether the proxy attorney should contact the respective malpractice carrier for, um, I'm not sure whether the question is for the person who is ill or for the, for the proxy attorney, him or herself. I think the answer to that is yes. Um, certainly that's a good idea. Uh, and I, um, that the malpractice carrier, the liability carrier should be aware that um, someone be handling someone's cases for a period of time, 
and that um, that person, the attorney, should also contact his or her carrier, not because there's a claim, but just to say, this is something that I'm doing. If it doesn't materially change the area of practice, it's still uh, still certainly um, a good step to take. No other questions. I guess we thank everyone. And Lucia, do you need to say anything at the end to wrap up? Uh, no, just thank you everybody so much for attending. As Elizabeth mentioned, if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to email them to me or directly to our panelists. And um, we also have the link to the advisory at the start of the PowerPoint. Um, so you can access that. It's on the BBA website. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Take care.